You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. On Long Island, police arrested Tommy Alvarado Ventura early this morning. He is accused of sexually assaulting a child, stabbing a stranger at a bar, and then stabbing an acquaintance at home. Police say he has a criminal record and has already been deported four times. Long Island reporter Kristen Thorne is live in Hempstead with details. Kristen? Sade, police say Alvarado Ventura did not know the woman who he allegedly stabbed outside this bar here in Hempstead. They say he put a knife inside her mouth and slit the side of her face. She also suffered a punctured lung. She is in serious condition at the hospital. Also recovering at the hospital is that two-year-old girl who he allegedly sexually assaulted. She had to have surgery to repair her injuries. This is, uh, you know, in 28 years, probably the most heinous criminal act I've ever seen. Police say sometime Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning, 31-year-old Tommy Alvarado Ventura sexually assaulted and beat a two-year-old girl in his apartment in Hempstead. The girl's four-year-old brother was also in the apartment. There was a person who was there watching the children. That person reports that he heard some uh, crying from the child at the time when Mr. Ventura was at the house before he got to the bar. He's talking about El Mariachi Loco Bar in Hempstead. They say Alvarado Ventura came here to buy pot. He got into an argument with a 24-year-old woman, stabbing her several times in her back and face. Police say he then returned to his apartment. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm... I gave you guys warnings about that one, and we have a little bit more audio on that. We also have former Border Patrol agent and um, ICE supervisory officer, former infantry officer in the U.S. Army, Jason Piccolo. He's going to be joining us next segment. We're going to talk about immigration and border security and the announcement that many of the children who were separated from their parents are reunited with their families Um and that our government is back to catch and release, thanks to the Democrats. They won this particular salvo. And I, I just wish that we had a Congress that would get together with the president on this to prevent this, because these people are being released into the country. And some of them aren't doing what needs to be done, as in adhering to the law. You would think that if you were in the country illegally, you would want to be as careful as possible not to do stuff like the depraved evil that this man visited upon these small kids and the two women, I guess he was in a rage. Who who understands or who can know and really process what drove this man to do this stuff? So it's interesting. The report that you're listening to is a local news report. And I'm telling you that because she goes on to close out the segment with a very interesting point, something that you and I would probably, hey, this is logic. Anyone should ask this question. But to hear a news person ask it, I was I was flabbergasted. It's number two. When the mother of those two children returned home, she discovered that her two-year-old daughter had sustained severe injuries about her body. And when she approached and spoke to Mr. Ventura about those injuries, it was at that time that Mr. Ventura attacked that woman also, stabbing her multiple times and striking her repeatedly about her body. 
Police say Alvarado Ventura has an extensive criminal history, including possession of drugs, assault, resisting arrest, DWI, and disorderly conduct. He's been deported four times to El Salvador. A woman who appeared to support Alvarado Ventura fainted after he went before a judge in Hempstead this morning. We reached out to ICE about the, uh, the what's going on here with Alvarado Ventura being deported four times and being in the country. They did not get back to us. As for the mother of the children, she was finally able to get help. What police say when Alvarado Ventura fell asleep, she went to a neighbor, called police. They came to the apartment and arrested him. He is being held without bail. So they reached out to ICE to find out why the guy was still in the country. Four deportations back to El Salvador. That is some determination for him to get back into the country four times. But it means also that there's a conduit by which people who want to reenter the country illegally can can travel. And that as difficult as it sounds to someone like, you know, to me specifically, not having any transportation and traveling thousands of miles through different countries and making it into the United States and then crossing the Rio Grande illegally sounds an impossible task. But clearly it's not impossible because he did it four times. And this time, hopefully, he will be incarcerated for the rest of his natural-born life and he'll never have the opportunity to re-enter our country illegally again. And so when we're talking about illegal immigration, when we get into this subject matter, I, I just get so sick of people, well, they're coming here out of love. They're... They're coming here for a better life. Sure, a ton of people are coming here illegally because they want a better life. Everybody on the planet would live here if they could. Imagine how many Russians, they have 146 million people that live in there. Imagine how many of them, if they could just, just raise their finger one time and not have to make any political statements and had no danger of reprisals or being kidnapped or anything like that, if they didn't have to worry about being sent to jail or losing their jobs or what have you, if they could just raise their finger, and then pack their stuff and move to the United States, imagine how many would. Now, take that number, because that's 146 million people. I'd say maybe 80% of them would just come here straight off. They probably wouldn't even pack. Think about all the people who are in third world countries where there aren't real paved roads. There aren't normal bathroom practices. How many of them, if they were given the opportunity, if you just raise your hand, you will be put on the next plane to America. And when you get off the plane, you'll have a passport and an ID and a driver's license and everything you need to claim citizenship. You'll be a, an American citizen. How many other billions of, of people would come to America? Now, you're telling me that because people who come from South America have such a close proximity to this country, they have rights that other people around the planet don't have? We're doing more legal immigration than any other nation on the face of the planet. And the faster we bring people in without assimilating them, the less likely it is that our grandkids will have the same American experience that we have. And I'm saying that as a person of color. So this isn't about white Americans seeing their numbers dwindling and not wanting the America to become brown. Who cares what color the people are? It's about the American experience. If you come here and you buy into our Constitution and you buy into the whole concept of that flag and everything that goes along with it, the Constitution, capitalism, the Federalist Papers, all of it, using the bathroom indoors, paved roads, 
women being able to walk around freely with their heads uncovered, getting educations, owning companies, owning land and property and voting. I mean, there's a lot to it. It's a very complex thing when you have all of these people living here and everyone's buying into the same idea. You have a nation that is strong and really has a respect for individual liberty. If you don't have people buying into the American experiment and becoming Americans when they get here, not Salvadoran Americans or African Americans, not people who are mad because something small, some small slight becomes a a indictment of the entire country, then you have a problem. Then you have little Somalia popping up in, uh, you know, the Northwest and, you know, little Islam or little, little Iran popping up in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. You have these areas where regular Americans, you can't go there. You can't travel there because the people have set up basically a, a uh, reenactment of the country that they fled from. The country that was too horrible for them to stay in. The country that they felt a credible fear of danger, prosecution, some kind of violence. They come here and recreate that same thing because they're not being taught how to be Americans. It's clear that the culture is superior because people want to come here. You don't have a border control problem on the border of Russia. You don't have border control problems in African nations. You don't have people from Italy and France fighting by hook or by crook to emigrate into Iran or Iraq or anywhere in the Middle East. I mean, do you think that's because those other cultures are superior to theirs and the people who live nearby just don't like anything that's superior to their own? Or is it because there's something about the Western experience, most specifically the American experience, but Western experiences, obviously, because they're having massive migration issues, There's something about it that people want for themselves. They want the modern amenities. They want cell phones. They want comfort. They want air conditioning. They want to be in these countries. But assimilation takes a generation. It's not something that you just come here, you walk around a little bit, observe, and all of a sudden you're assimilated. If it was that easy, we could have just unfettered immigration because people would just show up and instantly assimilate, and there you go. But habits are hard to break. If you're working on anything in your life right now, that resonates with you. I know it is resonating with me. It is so hard to break out of an entrenched habit. And your habits are things that are formed over the entirety of your lifetime. And the habits are actually wired into your brain. They're pathways in your brain. And the reason your brain hardwires habits into pathways is so that you can basically higher level functions need more brain power in order to, to operate. So that's why that 10,000 hour principle is so, it's, it's the most fascinating thing I've ever read. Uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, he talked about how experts spend 10,000 hours doing something and then they achieve a level of expert. Well, the reason it takes 10,000 hours is because that's about how long it takes for pathways for an activity to be created and cemented in your mind to the degree that whatever you're doing becomes second nature and you can actually pass that difficult activity into your secondary processes, meaning your brain's just doing that on its own without you literally thinking about it, commanding it to do so. And then 
You can devote your mind to other more difficult tasks, learning something new, memorizing something new, or creating anything else, anything else that you want to do. So much so, I was reading a book. I'll have to get the title off of here um, for you. And, And I've mentioned this on the show before. The book is about people who've had traumatic brain injuries and how the habits that they formed survived the traumatic brain injuries. So some of the habits did not survive. Like the, these are people who were in well into adulthood who could no longer dress themselves. They couldn't remember people's names, but they could remember how to do their jobs. If you took them to the place where they worked, they could do their job. But if someone walked up to them and said, hey, what do you want for lunch today? I'm sorry, who are you? And am I eating lunch here today? So the person's hardwired activities that they'd gotten to that expert level on survived the traumatic brain injury. So what I'm saying to you is that we have to bring immigrants into this country and give them the opportunity to achieve expert level American status in successive waves so that we don't overburden a populace that's already, I mean, you, do you think Americans, only, that's all we have time to do is just teach other people who come from foreign countries how to be Americans? No. That's why we can't have the immigration be at such a level that you don't have time to learn these things by osmosis, by getting, uh, learning how to speak English, getting a job, working on that job for a while, and then progressing up to the next level. Meanwhile, your kids are in American school being taught that socialism's bad. That's why you came here, because socialism is horrible. Socialism is just communism light. That's why you're here. The, the reason you don't want to keep living in that socialist pit you came from is because of socialism and because there's no rule of law and because there's also no money and your GDP is in the toilet. These are the realities that kids have to learn so that they don't want to recreate those situations from the old place here in America. And all of this has to go on while we do everything else that we do. The entire population cannot be devoted to assimilating people who are here from another country. So what we used to do was we used to spend some of our foreign aid budgets were devoted towards tamping down violence, eliminating the drug trade in South America. We had a whole system of that set up that was running at optimum speed when Barack Obama took the presidency over from uh, George Bush. And what did Barack Obama do? dismantle it, remove the funds. Violence escalated in South America, and then he instituted catch and release. He was deporting people like crazy. Then he said, well, we'll just catch them and release them into America because that works better for the Democrats. He started this problem. It's another one of his failures, one of his legacies, Barack Obama. And now Donald Trump has to try to clean it up. So we'll talk about how he's doing that and why he's doing it the way he's doing it when we get back with our next guest, who's a former U.S. Border Patrol agent, Mr. Piccolo will be with us right after this. everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I'm reading through the Old Testament now, 
and I'm coming to places that are named that I see on our Israel tour every March. It's really fascinating to think that Jericho existed way back in the Old Testament thousands of years ago, and I can visit there today. The same can be said for Jerusalem. The Bible literally comes to life when you visit Israel, the Holy Land. Now, we're going in March. My wife, Allison, and I, we lead these tours every March. So if you would like to go with us, you need to go to the website and check it out. It's twholyland.com, twholyland.com. If you want a brochure sent to your mailbox, just call us at 800-FAMILIES, option 5. That's 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5, and we'll send you a brochure. Hello, I'm Pastor Joseph Parker, and this is Daily Time in the Word. It's our goal to help you better understand the great blessing of spending time in God's Word every single day. You know, in the Word of God, the Ten Commandments is a wonderful discipleship tool for you in your individual life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And parents, it's a great discipleship tool for you to use with your children. The Ten Commandments are found in their entirety in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in both places, they're wonderful tools that bless the children of Israel, and they're wonderful tools that will bless you and your family as well. I would encourage each family to take time to read through them at least three times a week. Parents, we're wise to not only have our children read through them, but we're wise to teach them the meaning of each and every one of the commandments. And also, I want to challenge and encourage every single parent to help your children to pray through the Ten Commandments every single day. We're going to take time now to pray through them, and that way you can both uh, pray with me and learn how to pray the Ten Commandments with your children. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Help us this day to put you first. Help us, Lord, to make no graven images. Help us, Lord, to not take your name in vain. Help us, Lord, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Help us, Lord, to honor our fathers and our mothers. Help us, Lord, to not murder. Help us, Lord, to not commit adultery. Help us, Lord, to not steal. Help us, Lord, to tell the truth. Help us, Lord, to not covet. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Again, I want to encourage every single family listening, make it your goal to pray the Ten Commandments every single day. And again, it's a great and wonderful tool, discipleship tool for you and your family. You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Thank you for being here today and tuning into the program here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We're glad to be with you. And it's my pleasure to welcome Jason Piccolo. He's a former U.S. Border Patrol agent, ICE supervisory officer, and former infantry officer in the U.S. Army. Thank you for your service, Jason, and thanks for joining in today. Hey, thanks for having me, Stacey. It's fantastic to have you because in the last segment, we actually were discussing a very difficult story uh, for us to listen to and to discuss, and it's the story of this uh, illegal alien who uh, was, he's, he's been caught, but he raped a two-year-old, he cut a, her, her mother in the mouth, sliced her face open, stabbed another woman, beat up a few people. Uh, all before he was apprehended. And he was deported four times before this, uh, all of this activity. So he's in the country for illegally for the fifth time doing all of this. 
Well, you know, the problem is, is this is a common story. There was an article over the weekend about a uh, an alien that was deported. He came back. He was arrested by the police, but they released him. Um, he subsequently had it uh, drove down the wrong way and killed two federal agents. I mean, this is a common occurrence, and it's been going on for decades. And we're finally we're finally starting to realize that we have to take action on this. So what should we be doing? Because the latest news out of the White House is that the children have been reunited with their families. The ankle bracelets are back. These people are being released into the country. And the the number of people who are claiming asylum and entering the country illegally, that number is up over 800 percent from this time last year. It is. It is because the um, the optics down in South America and Central America are if you come to the United States, you will get some sort of benefit. Now, you have way too many immigration laws on the books right now that haven't been addressed. I mean, the Immigration Nationality Act, um, DACA, everything. We really need to address the laws and then show that, hey, you know what, if we're going to have a zero tolerance, that there's zero tolerance. If you come here, that you know, you're know you going to have to come here the right way if you want to stay. Because right now it's in such limbo that you don't know whether or not um, you can come over here and your DACA is going to get approved or some other benefit is going to get approved. So they're, they're flooding the border right now. So the, the same article at the Washington Examiner that talks about the increase in asylum claims also points out that violence in South America has gone down by 40%. So while it's still very dangerous and an unacceptable level of violence, especially for Americans who are used to relative peace and safety, it's a much better situation than it was two years ago in 2016 when they last measured the numbers. How do we get people where they need to... to uh, to be where they're ap- applying for asylum in the numerous missions that we have around the southern. Uh, so South American countries have an untold number of U.S. embassies and missions at which they can claim asylum. But these people are bypassing those so that they can cross into the country illegally. Well, that's the other issue, too. I think I believe Mexico has nine uh, consulate offices open up right now. And the thing is, we need to coordinate with the Mexican government to allocate spaces. So let's say right now we have 10 cities, um, we have ankle braces, we have other means that we can release people and detain people. But what we should do is work with the Mexican government to have an asylum uh, point of contact down there. And the other issue, uh, does that make sense? I, yeah. we, could, we could send more asylum, uh, send people down there, our temporary duty, asylum officers, et cetera, process the asylum claim so there's not such a backlog. So there can't be complaints that, hey, you know what, it's taken me two years to get an asylum claim. I've been waiting for two weeks just to get an application. So I'm, I understand we need to uh, you know, streamline the process and speed it up. But the fact is over 95% of individuals who apply for asylum have their claims denied because they don't meet the criteria for claiming asylum and entering the country. And we don't have the capacity as a country, landmass, economically, we in no way could accept every person who wants to seek and claim asylum in the United States to escape horrible living conditions or economic, uh, you know, lower standards, et cetera. Um, How do we get past this place where everyone seems to be stuck on the idea that people just need another way to get in here when the reality is, the majority of them don't meet the standard to come here under asylum-seeking status. Well, that's a reality, too, and that's the message that needs to be presented, not just by our government, but by the other governments that, you know what, you if you have a legitimate asylum claim, you have to pass these certain criteria, and if you don't, don't come to a consulate officer or don't come through it, don't come to the United States, because the thing is, 
people just don't realize what an asylum claim actually is. It's someone fearing for their life. I mean, this isn't just, you know, you can go to Chicago nowadays and have a lot more violence than, you know, I'd say 50% of South and Central America. So they have to understand that you have to have a legitimate reason to come to the United States. So a legitimate reason is one in which your government is persecuting you or there's some form of violence that's being leveled against you because of who you are, correct? Yes. yes. So um, many of the these other, people don't meet that standard. I mean, that's just it, not the, the case. No, it's not. And you know what? The thing is, we don't have people legitimately applying for asylum at a designated port of entry. What you're having now is you're having people enter the border through the poorest areas where there's no fence line, where there's no walls, and they're not presenting themselves to a designated immigration official. Their first contact with a designated immigration official is when that Border Patrol agent uh, arrests them out in the middle of the desert or up in the mountains. So they're not even presenting themselves to either a consulate office or to a designated port of entry. And that's like, uh, let me explain a port of entry. That's for for the audience that doesn't realize that that would be like, coming in through the border of Tijuana to San Diego, going up to where all the customs people are and saying, hey, I want to, here I am, I want to apply for asylum, I want to apply for refugee status. It's not coming in through the areas where, you know, there's nobody around and you're just trying to circumnavigate it and hope you don't get caught. Hmm. And then additionally, the areas where people are entering illegally are also well-known and well-traveled drug trafficking areas. So it's actually more dangerous to cross illegally than it is to simply go to a port of entry and claim asylum there. It is, it is. And that's what the problem with this whole issue is, is that a lot of the family units coming across right now, there are a, a good percentage of them, I don't know the facts specific, but there are a good percentage of them that are not uh, family-related. They're pairing adults with children, and they're, they're getting smuggled up here. They're getting trafficked. Um, it's a billion-dollar-a-year industry, or billion-dollar or more to traffic people up here. So there's a, it's a really, really big chance that you're going to get either one trafficked for sex or for another labor means, or you could actually get killed or harmed, lose your life or limb. And are we not also talking about um, something very, very – it's horrible to consider, but it's the truth – which is that when you talk about these children being paired with adults, many of these children have been trafficked into the country on multiple occasions. They're being used as a means of entry and then shipped back so that they can be used again. Uh, it, that, it, that is the absolute horror about this whole situation is the children. Um, and, and the children, the women, even men are getting victimized. and They're being exploited sexually uh, and even just, just sent to labor camps. They're just getting abused over and over uh, the adults, some adults are using them to, to come across the border. Then, like you said, they send a kid back down to South America, Central America, and then they send them, that kid back over just to get the adult board. And the victim is that young child. You know, the, the news has been focused a lot in the past on, you know, the MS-13s and the gang members coming across, but there are thousands of tender-age children being used and abused by these smuggling organizations. So... That kind of points to the truth of what the Trump administration has been sharing, which one of the things that they said was I saw one of the news reports, uh, mainstream media showing that some of the children who've been separated from their parents didn't recognize their moms. That is either a function of them having been away from their parents for a while or 
it's a function of the fact that these children aren't really here with their moms, that, that those are not their actual parents. Exactly. And that's the reason why, you know, initially when this first started happening in 2013, when the surge with the unaccompanied alien children was the, I'll explain the process. We'll take about two minutes just for the audience to kind of have an idea of how the, the border works. The child would either come by themselves or an adult. They'd get arrested at the border by a Customs and Border Protection or by an, an officer, a Customs and Border Protection officer or a Border Patrol agent. They would then get over to ICE custody. We would then release them to Health and Human Services, to Office of Refugee Red Resettlement, and then they would be sent to a contracted facility then released. And at the time, there was no vetting going on, not even to the to um, fingerprint the sponsors or to even conduct the, the basic criminal index checks. But now what we're doing is in 2016, they passed it where you have to fingerprint the sponsors in order to release them. And now they're actually implementing that. And then most recently, now we're doing DNA. DNA is the absolute, that's what we're going to have to use if we're going to want to really believe that child is with the right adult. So the essence of what we're talking about here is more money, more technical expertise, and more opportunities for us to utilize every means that we can to protect children while still protecting the border. And we have Congress and, uh, you know, basically the entire media working against the president who's attempting to do this. Well, the other issue, too, is we have the underlying fact that the cartel organization, the smuggling organizations, will smuggle anything. And right now, those children, those adults, and everybody else are a commodity. We have to disrupt and dismantle these smuggling organizations and attack them where it hurts, at the money source. Because right now, this problem is not going to go away. They're just going to find another means to traffic these children and these people. Right now, they're using adults. Right now, they're coming in as a family unit. But the thing is, we, this problem is not going away until we have full support by the country, a bipartisan full support. And you can't keep attacking the president because you're not going to get anything done. So what, where, do, where do the entrenched establishment Republicans come in on this? You have Paul Ryan and others who are really looking for some kind of amnesty deal, which just encourages more illegal immigration. And you have that's diametrically opposed to what voters and the American people want. Even Democrats, when polled, don't want to abolish ICE or open the borders or have a free-for-all down there. We don't have representatives who are acting the way that they've been elected to behave when they're sent to Washington, D.C. to act on behalf of the American people. Well, right now, the optics is spinning to abolish ICE, which I really take offense to that, is because they're trying to run on that immigration platform. Hey, if we get rid of this, if we get rid of ICE, we're going to get rid of immigration and we're going to have, essentially, we're going to have open borders. That's what the, uh, the one side is looking at right now. But we need our politicians to say, hey, look, we are going to sit down and we're going to pass some sort of immigration reform because that's what we need to stop this problem. I agree. Um, so I, I guess as someone who, with your background, you're an expert in this area, what do you recommend to uh, those of us who we are concerned about what's happening to children at the border? But I, I definitely feel and I think uh, the, the surveys and the polls also show that most Americans blame their parents or so-called trafficking smugglers. They blame them for the situation that's going on with the border with children being separated and what we want to see is a sealed up southern border, not uh, mechanisms by which the children and these people who are bringing them in get shipped into the country. Well, stay 
safety you mentioned before, I, I am a, a former infantry captain. And, you know, in the military, you have what they call choke points. And it's not a popular opinion on, on some sides of the circle right now, but we really do need a wall and not a fence. A fence is just not, it's not relevant to the situation. You need what they call choke points, areas that would funnel the children in and these families, these smuggling corridors, only to one central location where we could arrest and apprehend the trafficking uh, cells. I mean, we can stop the trafficking cells. Because without a wall, uh, you're not going to have those places that we call choke points. And the reality is you're not going to be able to put up a 1,500-mile wall. So you're going to have areas that are going to be open. But if you focus your efforts in those areas, you can curb the incoming traffic. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, Jason Piccolo, U.S. Border Patrol agent before, now you're retired, former <laughs> ICE supervisory officer, well, former infantry <laughs> officer. Quite quite a background there. We really appreciate your expertise and you coming on the show today. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, Stacey. All right. We'll speak to you again soon. Um, and we actually are going to be, we have just a couple minutes left in this segment. And I, I have to say, I'm, I appreciate what, so his analysis was, it was impartial. It, it, it's not about politics. It's really about if you care about these people. And there is more than one way to care about people who are being basically abused. The children are being abused and the parents are using them for economic improvement. In other words, if they didn't have children, they know they wouldn't be able to get into the country. And, and we see people coming over pregnant. I mean, people coming over with children that are not their own. The idea here is, as Christians, we want to obey the law. We want to have our laws followed. We want to bring justice to those who are trafficking human beings and doing these evil activities. That does not include an attitude that says, well, we're just going to set up a refugee organization. We're going to help as many refugees get into the country as possible. That People are passing that off as the solution, and it's not. It doesn't help because it encourages more people to attempt to get into the country as refugees, as uh, asylum claimants, et cetera, et cetera. The, there's, it's a multi-pronged approach that has to be taken. He talked about uh, genetics and testing and all of that. Yes, we need that too, but we need a deterrent. The wall, if, if let's just play devil's advocate, let's say we can't do 1,500 miles of solid wall, but we can put up much more wall than there is now, not fencing, but wall, and then the areas, as he said, choke points would then create an area or a mechanism by which we could say this is an asylum point or this is a border control point. So you're not actually on American soil at this point. You're being held here until we can ascertain whether or not you actually can enter the country as an asylum claimant. Anyone else who's not claiming asylum is turned around immediately without court cases or anything like that. These kind of creative solutions can happen and they will when we decide that's what we want to do. We'll be back with more right after this.
This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. As a newly married couple, Tony and I had many opportunities to nurture children. Our church, Bethany Baptist, embraced the concept that every child should be cared for by the church. Bethany had programs that reached out to the community, such as Vacation Bible School and fun programs for young people. Many of our friends at church had kids, so whether we were going to their houses or they were coming over to ours, we were always around children. Sometimes we'd even invite kids to spend a weekend with us so their parents could get away. We knew we would have children of our own eventually. Little did we know what God had in store for us. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Family is an institution set forth by God, one man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country, and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood, urbanfamilytalk.com. And my father, your great-grandfather, fought in World War II. Really? He was a gunner on the big ship out in the Pacific Ocean. Wow. Your great-grandmother did her part, too. Was she on a ship? Oh, no. She stayed back home. She and a lot of her friends worked really hard in a factory because the men had gone off to war. And they held scrap metal drives to help in the war effort. The folks back home were heroes, too. Here at the American Family Association, we consider you the heroes back home. As you fulfill your responsibility of caring for your family day to day, your partnership with us is crucial as we fight the enemies of freedom in America. Thank you for your commitment to the American Family Association. Grandpa, what's a scrap metal drive? (laughs) Let's get some cookies and I'll tell you all about it. You're listening to a best-of edition of Stacy on the Right. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. The United States contributes far more to NATO than any other country, both in terms of its share of GDP and in terms of dollar amount. This year, the United States will contribute an estimated 3.5% of its GDP to NATO. That amounts to about 706 billion dollars. Get your head around this. That is nearly 70% of NATO's entire defense budget. By way of comparison, the United States gives NATO 14 times more money than Germany does, even though the U.S. economy is only about five times larger. Still, the NATO Secretary General says countries are starting to contribute more, and listen to who gets the credit. 
uh, after years of cutting defense budgets, they have started to uh, add billions to their defense budgets. And uh, last year was the biggest increase uh, in defense spending across Europe and Canada in a generation. Why was that last year? It's also because of your leadership, because of your clear message. And, uh, and, uh, they won't write that. But no, I have said it before, and, and the, but the thing is that uh, uh, it really has a, uh, it's, it, your message is having an impact. Wow. <laughs> so the head of NATO admits to President Trump that his words and displeasure, voicing of, of his true feelings on the matter about the contributions to NATO have had an impact and have resulted in nations ponying up and paying more money in, so much so that they've been able to increase their budget. Now, you know, cost-cutting, conservatism, smaller this, smaller that, part of me is screaming, America should contribute less, <laughs> let other countries step up to the plate, you know, but the point is there wouldn't even be a discussion about increasing the budget or having more money to use if it weren't for Donald Trump. And he admitted that. And Donald Trump said in a very low voice, well, they won't report that. And they're not going to. We'll report it here. You can get the truth here always. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see the way he's able to move the needle on so many things by simply telling the truth. Uh, I'm really happy that he's doing it. I really am. I, I think a resetting of our relationship with foreign leaders so that they don't see us as just a big, huge piggy bank that they can stuff their little hands into and yank out whatever they want is appropriate and it is needed. And it couldn't come at a better time. It should have been done 20 years ago. It should have been done again 10 years ago. And then it would be done now, but it, we, we would have much less work to do. But, you know, you take what you can get. And this is part of the reason why the opposition to Donald Trump is so strong. And that's why, you know, I'm willing to not pay as much attention to the tweets that people don't like and the things that are triggering people and upsetting. No one's perfect. We're never going to have a president where you're just like all day, every day. He's never done anything wrong. He never will do anything wrong unless you're talking about the president of the United States being our father in heaven. Since we know that's not going to happen. We're going to go ahead and go with whatever human being best fits the bill. And if we're comparing where we are now to where we would be if there was a Hillary Clinton presidency, it's a whole universe apart. She would be preparing to install another justice on the Supreme Court who would completely obliterate the Heller decision and would reverse our gun rights. The border would be wide open, even more than it is now. And she would still be funneling money from world leaders into the Clinton Foundation, enriching herself. As it is now... She's trying to mount a reboot of her uh, last presidential campaign by running around and campaigning with Elizabeth Warren, who Democrats now feel possibly won't be their you know, savior uh, in, in a headdress. She won't be able to fix it for them. Cory Booker can't fix it. They're, the bench is not as deep as they thought. They're, not, they're now actually talking about Joe Biden. Joe Biden. And then, of course, I'm, I'm sure they would love it if The Rock, who has come out publicly and said that he is considering running for president in 2020, if The Rock would run as a Democrat, that would save everything for them. Because everybody likes The Rock. But I'm not voting based on who I like. And I don't think I, I, millions, million, tens of millions of Americans 
We're not concerned with liking the president. We're concerned with electing someone who will do the dirty work of running this country. It's hard work. And we need someone who is firm and strong and not afraid to be unpopular. And if you, so here's the other thing. You got to go to my, uh, my Facebook page and look there. I have a picture from last night uh, that someone else shared. It's a, it's a candid shot taken by one of the photographers of um, Donald Trump. And they're all kind of standing in a line. And I guess maybe the camera guy, you know, said, you know, turn for a picture. And they turn and, and you've got Donald Trump kind of smiling or smirking a little bit and looking kind of mischievous. And then you have Emmanuel Macron behind him and he's gripping President Trump's arm and he's smiling like, you know, like they're best friends. Now, remember, Macron was supposed to be this enemy of Donald Trump. Now, I think they argue a bunch and I think they disagree on a lot. And I think, you know, they they make dueling statements about who said what and who agreed to what. I think they disagree, not just a lot, but I think they really are far apart on some things. But it doesn't mean they don't have a good rapport. And I really, I think people underestimate the likability of Donald Trump as a world leader dealing with other world leaders. And even in his tough moments where Americans are all afraid that he's saying things that will make people not like him, being a leader isn't about being liked. Being a leader is about doing what you know is right when you know everyone's going to hate you for it and doing it anyway. That's leadership. I think he knows that. He's not perfect, but he's doing a better job than a Hillary Clinton would. When I'm talking about Donald Trump and leadership, I think it's appropriate for us to go to uh, other people who are leaders and not just the ones we like, but ones that we maybe don't like and look at the way that they deal with these types of situations. And I think as Americans, because we have kind of a TV society now where a lot of what we see is filtered through the lens of what television programs kind of teach us is this is the way things work. And in some of these movies, you'll see most of them, you'll see that Leaders are, they're strong, silent types. And, you know, um, either they have them in movies where they use profanity all the time or they have them where they don't use any profanity at all. When the truth is human beings are fallible and we, you, you can shoot to never, ever curse. And many people achieve that. They hit that mark. And there are others who curse occasionally, et cetera. The reality of human beings is that it's unexpected. You don't have a guarantee that one person will always be one way and another person will be another way. And I think when you get to um, a, a ton of, of, of content where you're watching and you're seeing what leaders are like, some of it's sanitized. So the way that leaders really were with people, you, in order to kind of get a true picture of that, you have to read historical books about them. And then you find out, oh, wow, this president was a potty mouth or, oh, wow, this, you know, this business leader was kind of like an iron fist. He was only friendly with family. Everybody else he viewed as a potential business person, and he always presented the same type of affront to them. These are things that I think fall to the wayside in our consideration when we're talking about what leadership looks like. And so that's why with, with President Trump, there's, first of all, there's more than one facet to him. I, and I'll contrast that by a, a statement that was put out yesterday. Um, so you've got Emmanuel Macron's wife. And she did an interview with a French magazine, a news, news magazine, and they were asking her about her relationship with Melania Trump. And in the interview, she talks about the first thing, her, her, her kind of um, 
observations, her first observations and reactions to the way that Melania Trump lives at the White House in the United States. And she said, one of the things that really surprised me is that Melania Trump has a very, very strong personality. She's easy to laugh. She laughs a lot. And she's very personable, like she's entertaining. Um, but she tries to hide the strength of her personality. So I, I was, you know, reading, I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting. And then she said she was shocked and, and dismayed by the lifestyle that Melania Trump leads as the first lady because it's very controlled and she has almost no freedom. She can't open windows in the White House. She can't just take off down the sidewalk in front of the White House and walk to a coffee shop or go, you know, shopping. She can't do those things as first lady of the United States where the first lady of France can. She says every morning she gets up, gets dressed, and walks right out of her residence and just strolls on down the sidewalk, and she is not molested. She doesn't, no one bothers her. She just takes off, goes shopping, goes coffee, does whatever she wants, has lunch with friends, goes to work, does whatever she wants to do. And she found that to be a very, like, she, she was flabbergasted by the difference in her life as the First Lady of France and Melania Trump's as the First Lady of the United States. And there were other things. She, she was very complimentary towards the First Lady. Um, but I just thought that was a fascinating contrast that she illuminated between her life and uh, the life of Melania Trump. And so just like we, we don't often get to hear Melania Trump speak, we never see her in kind of private situations uh, because how would they be private if the news media was there giving us pictures? We do see her interacting with people like the, the reason that I got to that article, which it was just a, some trans uh, translated excerpts of the article. The way that I got there was that I saw some photographs of the president in Belgium and they were at a NATO uh, couples like dinner thing, like a, well, the, the wives were in in the space as well as the husbands, but the the wives were seated in chairs together as a group. And as the women filed in, the cameras are rolling and you see a bunch of the world leaders wives come in and Melania Trump comes in and she's very self-contained. You can tell she's, it's like she's giving off kind of a little bit of a stressed out vibe. She sits down and just begins to kind of really slowly observe the space. And then Emmanuel Macron's wife comes in And Melania Trump immediately lights up and starts smiling and they greet each other and then they turn and start, you know, laughing and talking to each other, just the two of them, even though there are other women seated on the same row with them. And then from there, they had the link that you could click over to with the excerpts from the the article that uh, was about Mrs. Macron and her describing the differences. And she said that they got along famously while she was in the United States and she felt they created a real friendship between the two of them. And that was evident in their reactions to each other when she entered the space after Melania Trump at this NATO meeting in Brussels. And so I just I think all of these things point to us. We can know a lot about the president of the United States. We can know a lot about the leadership style of individuals by watching them in public and and judging by their actions. But we don't really understand the dynamic between foreign world leaders and our president. And the representations that are given to us in the media are often very inaccurate and very skewed and peppered with the kinds of uh, it's an intentional direction to make Americans think one way about President Trump when the reality is, you know, before he ran for the presidency, he was one of the most popular Americans in the country. 
Uh, he was a well-known public figure and liked by all, including leaders in the black community and lots of black Democrats. So the idea that he's not that he doesn't have a rapport with any of these world leaders, I do think he has a strained relationship with uh, with the head of Germany, um, Angela Merkel. I, I do think he has a strained relationship with her, but, but I think um, it's strained because the two of them can't have a rapport because ideologically they are so different where Emmanuel Macron seems to be almost like he's so youthful. He's, it, he's, he has a different presentation, which can facilitate you. We've all been there. Someone that you think, how could you possibly think that stuff? But personality wise, the person is great fun to be around and really interesting and fascinating. And it helps you to kind of set to the side your reservations about whatever the thing is that you're working on. And if you've ever had to work on committees and things like that, you're often paired. The committee is comprised of individuals who would never, ever as a group be in the same group, but you're in the same group because you're working on whatever it is, whatever committee or whatever board or what have you. And it's the same type of thing with our world leaders. So I just feel like we all need encouragement to view them as what they are, which is people who have these individual personalities, these individual um, strengths and weaknesses, which includes President Trump. And he's going to do, in my estimation, he's only doing this job to right what he sees are some endemic wrongs and to protect the American people, which is a really tough job. He needs our prayers. All of these world leaders do, but specifically our president does. And that's what we have to do. Uh, that's the show for today. I will be back with you tomorrow with more Stacy on the right. Have a blessed evening, you guys. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association. Hey, I'm Miki, co-host of Aaron the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. I want to invite you to be part of our online chat community we've affectionately called The Churban. While you listen to your favorite programs, you have the opportunity to communicate in real time with the hosts of those programs and other Urban Family listeners. Find out what the talk is all about. Become a Turbanite at urbanfamilytalk.com.